On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Commonwealth Games. There is a report going to the city, either tomorrow or very soon, that sheds some light on what the costs would be to the city. And those behind it say, very little. Well, how little is little? Stick around, you'll find out. We're also going to talk about masks, because they seem to be the point of great contention these days. A lot of people digging in their heels, very anti-mask or very, very pro-mask. What if you're caught in the middle? Hmm. And we're going to chat with Bubba O'Neill about the Blue Jays, some of the decisions they made, and about the XFL, which is sounds like coming back again. How will it affect the CFL? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, the bid committee for the 2026 Commonwealth Games will be filing a document with the city that I believe, and we're going to find out the details in a moment, but I believe is going to make the case that a games here in 2026 would leave no post-games costs for the city to handle. Now, that can be interpreted a number of different ways, and we're going to get into that. But this is, I think money, I think costs, are unquestionably the number one discussion point and talking point and concern around bidding for the games in many, many, many people's minds. So... A report that says anything that would bring down costs to the city is probably going to be of great interest. But anyway, let me not be guessing at this. Let me bring in the chair of the bid committee to discuss this. Lou Forporti is with us. Lou, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Delighted. So let's um, let's just dive right in. I want to get to some of the other stuff in the in the report and what you're going to be filing in a second. But let's just get to the nuts and bolts because I think this is really what everybody wants to know. No post-games financial obligations. What does that really mean? Right. Well, let me explain that because it is a, a really key differentiator. We, as you alluded to, knew from the very beginning uh, that imposing costs on the city either up front uh, in terms of, of capital investment or post-games in terms of operating costs that would have any impact on the municipal levy or a meaningful impact on the city budget, no matter the value proposition, no matter the return would not be viewed favorably. And uh, we took that as a governing principle in approaching the redesigning of the games. And so uh, when you begin from that premise, and here, uh, if I say it a thousand times, I'll not be able to say it enough. When you have a bid for the first time ever, that is an exclusive arrangement in which the rights holder is prepared to design a games program, reducing it in size if required, to facilitate pandemic recovery, you have an incredible opportunity to design something that leads to this kind of result at the municipal level. So on the capital investment side, we've created a massively downsized capital investment plan that nonetheless, I think the public will see is really, really significant uh, and focused on the specific needs of the community, long-time needs, without a penny more for anything that's unnecessary. That isn't going to require any new money from the city. Uh, We're looking to deploy existing long-term capital commitments the city has made for these uh, same assets or infrastructure, and that figure isn't terribly substantial, to be candid, some access to the city's future fund. But the balance of the funding will not be coming from the city. It'll be coming from a combination of the private sector and senior levels of government. And with respect to operating costs, we totally redesigned the venue plan and did two things of significance. One, we created alternate venue sites that uh, had different profiles. 
In some cases, they were larger infrastructure legacy projects that had higher cost, or there was an alternative site that had much lower cost that wouldn't uh, impose any burden on the community, but wouldn't leave a legacy. And we're leaving it to the city and senior levels of government to decide what to do. And if none of those are suitable in the end, given the arrangement with the Federation, there is an opportunity to revisit and adjust again the venue plan because it isn't a bid. And that is the commitment that we're going to make. And in fact, we're going to do better than that. We've, uh, with the advice and consent of the city, have engaged the city's auditors to assess the venue plan and budgets to provide a public opinion setting out the impacts, negative or positive, on the levy and on city finances so that the public can be absolutely comforted that the city's experts have independently verified what we're saying is the case. Okay, let me break down, go deeper into a couple of these things. Again, just to, because, you know, you understand, I know you understand that lots of bid people at different bids for different games over the years have said, it's going to cost nothing. And then it comes in with a way higher bill. So people, you know, they want to know, I think, the nuts and the bolts of this. You have talked about the no post-games financial obligations. Is that just on the sports venues or would that also be on things like, um, athletes village housing or on security measures that the city may have to pick up costs for at some point? Like, are we talking everything or just the sports venues? Well, you have to separate operating costs from infrastructure, right? Because those are entirely different things. And there aren't, there isn't post games operating uh, costs that arise as a legacy deliverable as a result of things like policing or security. Those are one-time expenses relating to the games. The area in which um, there is a different analysis that will have to be is housing and it's not athletes housing per se. We just finished a large public presentation. There'll be much more around the affordable housing strategy. It's really the city's existing strategy that we're looking to accelerate with the games. Uh, and in that regard, the, the, the implications for the city and city budget are separate and different, but they're within the existing understanding of the city's housing strategy. But because all of this is a housing strategy, it's governed and dealt with in the way that the city would typically deal with affordable housing. This is for all of the athletic um, venues that would be deliverable in the games. And again, it's not a bid. And so in this particular case, it's entirely within the purview of city council at the end of the day, even in relation to its support in principle to say, look, if it's a penny over this, we're out. And that's entirely possible here. From a risk mitigation perspective and a value perspective, this it, it's a deal, I think, that would be unconscionable to turn down uh, if fully understood for our community. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lou, one of the things, you said it just a moment ago, and I've seen it in the document that I believe is the document that's going to the city tomorrow, is the line, a materially downsized sports program. What does that mean for the Commonwealth Games? What does that mean for costs? Well, a couple of things. So first of all, appreciate that when we were asked to consider the redesign of, of, of this event, we'll call it that, for the purposes of a pandemic recovery, a foundational principle was really reducing the cost for sports venue, economizing everywhere we could, and looking to mac- maximize where it made the most sense for pandemic relief. And of course, as I'm sure your listeners know by now, housing, affordable housing is our primary legacy deliverable for, for the first time in, in Commonwealth sport history. Any multi-game sport history. So what does that mean? We took a 2030 bid, which had a sports venue budget in the range of about $550 million. And Scott, as you know, that was approved by every level of government, including municipal council. 
And we've pushed it down on a preferred slate of venues that is about $300 million lower at around 250 million bucks. And how? we have continued. How, how can you, and now I know you have some deals with other people, but how can you do that? I mean, that seems, it's impressive, but how can you do that? Well, it's just a, so when the public or council expresses some consternation that they're not getting information fast enough, the reality is that a great many people spent an enormous amount of time looking at all of the regional assets, assessing regional needs, putting experts in a room to figure out exactly how to do that. And that's incredibly complicated, but we've done it. And we've done it through the, the help and support of PCL, who I'm sure all of your listeners know, will be filing a document, likely now going to be Monday. There's a lot of PCL setting out how they have calculated the cost with adjustments for inflation, risk mitigation, and they're essentially certifying that these costs, vetted by consultants overseas, reflect costs that show that we have focused our efforts on specific critical needs in the community. In some cases, we've gone to other communities where venues uh, present a real opportunity to economize. And as a consequence, shaving everything to the bone, we brought it down to 250, we would prefer, but a number that could be as low as about 170 million. And we're looking to take that additional 300 million or so and put that much more money into housing. And that's the plan. And we can live with a less ambitious ceremonial games, less magnificent infrastructure, because people need housing and other economic benefits now. For those councillors or others who look at 2030 nostalgically and say, well, we just want to keep that, can they really rationalize committing to spending $300 million more for sports infrastructure alone for a party in 2030 when we can do this much more economically, focusing on people in need right now? And, and that's the message we're going to be conveying to council. I must say, Lou, I think a lot of people are listening right now going, wait a second, this is backwards world that we have now the person who's behind this bid saying, let's do housing and less spending and councillors saying, no, we want a bigger party. I, I think people are going to wonder if the uh, world has started spinning on a backwards axis here or something. Do we have commitments? Do we have locked in commitments from those higher levels of government on this? We don't have locked in commitments. Uh, we have uh, from the federal government, uh, their indication to us that uh, if the province were to express its support, the federal government will be there. And our minister, Minister Tassi, has been a champion for us in this region, especially because of her passion for housing, which is so important to us. We've started discussions with the senior most levels of the provincial government, and there is significant interest in doing this. Uh, they're doing assessment right now and vetting. We're providing them with information. We're discussing the implications of of our housing program and ambition and how uh, catalyzing federal government money as part of the games for housing, which is so unusual as part of the games legacy, is a value to the province. Um, and so we're optimistic about the province. What I'm hearing, what everybody is saying to me at senior levels of government is, well, it's difficult for us to step up unless city council shows enthusiasm and support. And that's an understandable political concern, and we're going to work to earn it. But in the messages that we started communicating this week and as we roll this out, uh, we would want to make very clear that when you unpack this, when you understand the independent certification and assessment that's coming with this, and when you, when folks finally get their head around the fact, as we've been saying from the beginning, that this isn't a bid, that the Federation means what it says. They're permitting us to create an event that makes sense for this time right now to help people in this moment, because they'll be the first multi-sport games in the history of anywhere, candidly, that has allowed a community, a province, a country to do this with, with their property as the purpose for having the event itself. And 
we just think it's so powerful, so timely, so necessary um, that we're going to get, I think, very passionate support when it's completely and fully understood. That is Lou Fraporti. He is the chair of the committee that is behind the 2026 Commonwealth Games. Well, it, 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 is it a bid? We can't really call it a bid, the push. Let's call it the push. Right, I know it's right. not a bid officially yeah. yet. We can call it an initiative, a design exercise, okay. whatever you want. To, it ain't a bid. That's just, that's just <laughs> All right. It. Lou Fraporti, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Take care, Scott. Look, it is a really complicated one because I have no doubt, I have zero doubt that the number one concern people in this city have is not about whether or not we want to have a sporting event here. I think people, if you said we got a sporting event and it's going to cost us nothing, I think everyone would go fine, bring it on. The number one concern is money and it's always going to be money. And if this document can clarify that, can make council and people listening and people in the city confident and they believe it, well, maybe we move closer to making this happen. And if it doesn't, I got to believe that it's not going to get the support because I really don't see a likelihood that council is going to go ahead with something right now that's going to cost tons and tons and tons of money. So this document is going to, along with explanations, is going to have to bridge that gap and make sure that they it can lead to confidence that uh, that this would not be the case. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may have noticed that masks are a bit of an issue these days. You know, once upon a time in the good old days when things were simpler, you could talk about masks and you were debating about which goalie had the coolest mask in hockey, the coolest painting on it. Now it's all arguing. It's all fighting. There's a piece in the spec today. You can go read it. It's online at thespec.com about the ardent wearers of the mask versus the ardent non-wearers of the mask. Headline is, where do pro and anti-mask crusaders come from? This is no longer seemingly just a health issue. This is now a point of principle. You are either a masker or an anti-masker. I suppose there are some people in the middle, although I don't hear too many of them. People have taken sides. Now, I, I've written a couple pieces for the paper on the issue of masks with different things. And let me tell you, uh, I have had some angry letters and emails as a result from both sides. Uh, to the folks who thinks masks are unnecessary, I am, and here's a quote that one of them gave me, I am part of a cultural Marxist effort to try and well, I don't know what, to jam masks down people's throats. To the folks who think that they are absolutely necessary, any question at all or a perception of a question that there could be a whiff of uncertainty around their value means that you are placing people's lives at risk. You personally are responsible for any death. I mean, people are deep in on this one. It is a little heated. Well, what if you are stuck a little bit in the middle? What if you have to deal with this stuff on a real life basis. Rick Cregan is the guy behind Hutches. He runs Hutches on the beach. Uh, hopefully you've been there often and regularly and eaten their food because it's uh, it's one of the Hamilton landmarks. Rick, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. How are you doing, Scott? Well, listen, I'm probably better than someone who has to work in the public service sector these days with this stuff going on because I'm assuming that there are people who will come to your restaurant at times and not be wearing a mask. What do you do if they are? Uh, if they come up to the door, I, we ask them right away to put a mask on. And? And 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 if, you know, if they don't have a mask, what we've, we've said to them, we'll provide one for you and we'll just charge you a dollar. 
because we just found there was too many people that, that weren't wearing masks at first. But, I mean, lately it's been, like, most of the people are, are pretty good about it. But as I understand it, I mean, when we get to pushing, you can't, the bylaw the city has specifically says you can't really push, you can't really ask them why. If they say, I'm not going to wear it and I've got an exemption, that's the end of it for you, right? No, right on the sign, it says, please respect them if they say they cannot wear a mask for health uh, issues. So most of the people who come to your door, if they're not wearing one, are they generally... Oh, geez, forgot. Sorry, it's in my yeah, car. I left it at home. A lot of them will run back to their cars and, and get them. You know, they don't give you a hard time. It's just the, the odd ones that, uh, like when you, when you get a family of four or five, and they, they're telling you that uh, they they have he- all have health issues. In the back of your head, you're kind of wondering, you know. Well, absolutely. And I mean, this is part of the reason I wrote the piece the other day about the bylaw. It has a big loophole in it, and that is that, with our bylaw, and not just ours, there are a number of other cities. If you say you have a medical exemption, as far as the bylaw is concerned, you do. There's no onus to prove anything. But again, that puts you and other restaurant owners in a bit of a spot, I think, because do you have any obligation to do anything? Uh, I mean, I guess we could tell them that, that they weren't allowed in, but I mean, then you're turning away customers. I, I, we, we offer, you know, they can phone in and place their order and, and then... Uh, and pay for it ahead of time, and the food comes right out to the front out the front door, and they don't even have to go into the restaurant. So, as far as like you know, if your health issues are that bad, uh, I would suggest that people do that. Like I'm, you know, I'm well aware of people with with breathing issues because my my own stepfather has COPD. So I get it. Like I mean, if you have a problem uh, like that, it makes it hard. Has anybody balked at the idea of just waiting for their food to come out and said, "No, I really want to come in." Yeah, yeah. There's well, there's some people that are pretty demanding. They're saying, "No, I have a health issue," and they come in. I just, just ran into it on the weekend with a woman and two kids, and then the people behind her said, "We're not going into the restaurant until they leave." So I had to wait for that person to, to clear out uh, from the restaurant, and then I brought the other two ladies in. Yeah, it's it's absolutely. Um, again, if you're in the service industry somewhere, if you're relying on customers, and I guess that's everybody, but it's an awkward position to be in because you're either going to tick off one customer or tick off the other. If you try and push the issue, which you're really not supposed to, uh, you get them mad. And if you don't make someone wear a mask, there are going to be people who are on that other side who are saying, I'm not coming in. Yeah. And you know what? It's fine for me because I'm an adult, but when I put the young girls out front, uh, you know, there's some customers that have become like really abusive and use language that you're, you've got a fa- you're on family radio there, so I couldn't even tell you the, some of the things these girls have been called. Because they have asked someone to put a mask because on? they've asked somebody to put a mask on. Is there, and there's another part to this, and we're going to get into that after a break in just a second here, but for this part, Ricky, I mean, is there any, from your perspective, is there any kind of solution? Because I'm sure you've given it some kind of thought. Uh, other than what I, I just said to you, Scott, I mean, really, uh, if your your health issue is that bad, I, I would suggest you you phone an order in and, and uh, or uh, call Uber and and get them to deliver it. I mean, um, I I wouldn't go into a place with large gatherings and put my health ri- at, at risk. So I, I just don't uh, I don't understand the, that that kind of thinking. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting about the argument du jour. Well, the argument du since March. Not quite perfect French, but masks. Everybody is supposed to, as you understand, wear a mask. There's bylaws in place in the city for masks, but there are exemptions 
in the bylaws and where things become really challenging is the exemption is quite broad. I wrote about this the other day, that if you say you have a medical condition, as far as the bylaw is concerned, you do have a medical condition and no bylaw officer or store employee or anyone is permitted by this bylaw to dig in and ask you any questions about your condition. So if you look perfectly healthy and look, you could be looking perfectly healthy and still have one, but they can't say, wait a second, what? I, I, I don't believe they can't. That is not part of it. But what happens now is you have the people who are adamant mask wearers and the people who are not wanting to wear the mask, not counting the people with legitimate exemptions, by the way, they are, they're in the middle of this battling over this stuff. And you get someone like Rick Cregan from Hutch's on the beach who we're talking to, who is stuck in the middle because he's running a business and you have some people who get angry when they see someone without a mask. And some people get angry if you ask to wear a mask. And Rick, there's a second part of this. And I want to go into this a second. I wrote a piece the other day as well, a second one. Uh, I drove around and found an awful lot of fast food places where a high percentage of the staff was either not wearing a mask or not wearing a mask properly. Now, this gets really tricky now because in the bylaw, there are also exemptions or places where you don't have to wear one. And one of them is in the non-public area of a restaurant, correct? Sorry, I missed that. What was that? Oh, in the bylaw, one of the things that one of the exemptions are one of the things you don't have to do. If you work in a restaurant and you're in one of the non-public areas, am I correct that you don't have to by the law wear a mask? Yeah. Yeah. Like in the kitchen, you wouldn't have to necessarily, but I mean, we, we make all the, the staff wear the mask. Um, and, and I mean, we've got three or four uh, kids in the, the store that, that have asthma and yeah, they comply to the rule. And yet, because as I say, the bylaw allows for that, you end up again with not yet your place necessarily, but was at some places then with confusion because you'll see someone working behind the counter who's not or not wearing it right. Yeah, and I, I, I would imagine that they they're, they're told their boss that they they have health issues, and then you you get into labor laws, and and, and that if uh, if you know you're enforcing, you're making sure they have to wear a mask. But again, you've now got people coming into a restaurant as I did when I, what got me writing about this was I was going to buy food and I looked it up after what the real safety risks were, but you walk into a restaurant, you see someone not wearing it right. And you go, oh, do I really want to buy food here? Even though it is perfectly legal. Yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of confusing when you look it up. And as a matter of fact, we looked it up again, once we, we saw your article just to make sure that we were doing the right things and Again, the, the people in the kitchen don't necessarily have to wear the mask, but uh, in our case, we're, we're we're asking to to make sure they wear them. And if they, maybe if they they do have real breathing problems, we've asked them to wear the visors so their their face is covered and it's uh, they're not uh, people are, don't have to worry about it as much. But Rick, where this gets so difficult is, and and I wrote it, and I know it's been said a lot of other places. Even though that's the law, even though that's the bylaw, and those are the rules. You said the word, it's confusing. And so people come into a place and if they don't know and they are not sure or they're freaked out about this virus, that is going to make them freak out even further. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't expect the general public to know those, those rules. So because not, not everybody's going to go like, like yourself, go online and, and dig through everything because it's, it's not right there. You have to dig through it a bit before you find the information. So I, I could see where the, the general public would be confused by it. 
So how do you, again, I, I asked you last time, is there a solution? I mean, how do you, do you have to put up other signs that list the bylaw exemptions and with a big yellow highlighter saying, if you work in the kitchen area, you're okay. Or, or would doing that actually draw attention to it and make people go, wait, I'm not eating food that someone without a mask made. Uh, yeah, Blab, I mean, if we put up another sign, I mean, we've run out of room putting up signs through, through <laughs> all of this. Um, it's true. And we, everything that the government puts out, we, we've got on our front door and we've got in, in their kitchen to uh, make our employees aware of it. So, I mean, um, I, I, you know, as far as uh, solutions for it, I don't have them. I'm not that smart. So um, I, I run a restaurant. I'm not, uh, you know, a, a doctor or anything like that. So. But that's, that's, isn't that the whole difficulty with this is that because of, and I'm not even blaming the people who drew up the bylaw. I don't mean that either. I mean, these are impossible conundrums, conundra, whatever the word is to have to try and deal with, because again, we, we seem to have people who have dug in their heels so much on one side or the other that I don't know that you can ever satisfy everybody. Well, you're probably not going to, but I mean, I mean, for the, for the, the bulk of the general public, I, you know, if I wish they would just comply and not, not give the people, uh, the employees on the on the front lines a hard time about it. it was, they're not the ones making up the rules. It is uh, it is an interesting one for sure, and and when I say interesting, I mean difficult for people like you who uh, who have to deal with this. Rick Cregan from Hutches on the Beach. Go visit him. Go get some food. Wear a mask if you can. Don't make it difficult. If you have a real exemption, like anyone, we get it, but. Uh, yeah. Rick, thank you for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott. It's, um, I am entirely, and I want to make this clear, I am entirely sympathetic to the people who legitimately have medical issues, who can't or, you know, it's very difficult to wear masks. I am entirely sympathetic. I have asthma. I have asthma. I get it. I completely understand. Uh, not asthma to the point where I can't breathe in a mask, but I have it. But I, I get it. But if you're one of those people who's just decided that it doesn't apply to you, if is it not just a courtesy at this point to say, yeah, I know I cannot wear it, but for everyone else who's freaked out by this, I'm going to throw a mask on, even though it's not, I don't have to, I can make an excuse. It seems like it's courtesy at this point. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in someone. We love having him here. It's been a while. Schedules, sports events, stuff. It's tough to get him these days. His schedule is jam-packed. He's like the pretty girl at the grade nine dance. He just can't. There's not enough time to do all the stuff he wants to do and all the dances he wants to dance with. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. How are you, sir? Well, it's not bad. I mean, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta hit it up when it's going well, though, right? I mean, it's we're we're probably looking at about two weeks away from the sports world not going into shutdown mode like it did in the spring, but pretty close, with the exception of the National Football League. I should ask you: Have you ever before been referred to as the pretty girl at the grade nine dance? <laughs> you would be the first for many things, my friend. <laughs> As it was coming out of my mouth as a metaphor, as a simile, I went, that's a really odd one to throw out there, but I was half, I was committed. I had to follow through. <laughs> you just got to go with things. You, know, gotta, you just got to roll with it. Uh, speaking of rolling with it, there's a good way to get into this one. We watched the Blue Jays for the last couple of days uh, be very, 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 very clever, way smarter, I think, than anyone else in baseball history because a 
apparently the Blue Jays know better than anyone else who's ever done this. They didn't start their ace in game one. They started someone else who they pulled, despite the fact that he was cruising along after just three innings, put someone else in who promptly gave up the winning runs. Um, have the have the Jays front office, because I don't believe Charlie Montoyo, the manager, was the guy making all these calls. I think this was mandated down to him. Has the Jays front office been humbled by this? Because this, to me, looks like a colossal failure of overthinking. Well, that's tough, Scott, because... You look at what happened in that game one decision, and you're right. I think every single one of us, because conventional baseball thinking has always been over the years that your best pitcher, um, especially if it can line up right in terms of days of rest, and it did, where Hunjin Ryu could have started game one of uh, against the Rays um, on normal days rest. They decided to give him an extra day's rest, and they started Matt Shoemaker. And a guy that hadn't even won a game all year long, right? But historically, had been four and zero against the Rays in his history. So, uh, and it worked out. I mean, Shoemaker, they, they I guess they had planned to only give him two innings. They gave him an extra innings because the guy threw, you know, he struck out two. He did, uh, he was, pitched three shutout innings. Now, the going to Ray, which you know was a, a I mean, it's a, it's um. It's a the Rays are a primarily left-handed batting team, and you had a hard-throwing left-hander. He actually pitched pretty good, Scott. I mean, there was the pass ball. I mean, it was I could argue it was a wild pitch, but I believe it went down as a pass ball. Um, and he did give up the opening run. But to me, this was more about their offense, which had been so good for the last month or so. Didn't they didn't show up? I thought their pitching was better. Right, the Jays' pitching held. The Rays, to lead to, to, I mean, not as many runs. It was a 3-1 game, but they held them to four hits. I don't know what you want. Well, so, I tell you, I, I, I tell you the reason. I mean, it's they the did. No, that, those guys did. Those guys did. I would have. Here's what I would have done differently. If you're going to, if you're going to not start Ryu in the first game, you let Shoemaker go until he shows some signs of trouble. You may have your guy ready in the bullpen, so you don't overuse him. Sure. But if you're cruising, I am loath to take a guy out because you never know what you're getting with the next guy. And beyond that, now that you've committed to starting Ryu in the second game, the question was, well, what happens if exactly what happened happens and he doesn't have his stuff? Well, now you have to keep a starter for your third game in case you get there. So you've blown two of your best guys who could have, one of them could have come in because they're not going to pitch two days in a row. I just, you know what, but there's Scott, a reason. But, but hold on. That's, I mean, and then I see where you're going. And, and, and in some ways I kind of agree with you, but I mean, I got to play devil's advocate here. And I thought, you know, we have to make people think here. But Ryu allowed seven runs. The race scored eight. So the guys that were available to pitch in the back end after Ryu only went an inning and a third did a good job, including Nate Pearson. But would you have pulled Ryu earlier? Would you have pulled Ryu earlier if you knew you had an extra guy who could go? Or were you letting him go a little bit longer to try and get something out of him? He only pitched an inning and a third. I know, but would you have still taken... His final batter... His final battery, it's a 3 nothing game. And you know and I know, based on the Blue Jays' offense, 3 nothing is not a big hole for that team, generally. Generally, it's not a big hole. And the last batter he faced, he gave up the grand slam. So I, I kind of can't blame the manager here. I think the Jays' players themselves, one, as I said, the offense was invisible in game one. 
and two, the starting pitcher, who should have been better and wasn't, did not perform. And that happens. It's sports. It's, it, it goes that way sometimes. I just don't know if there's anyone to blame here in this one. Well, I, again, I, I think that you end up with a front office, because again, first of all, for, just before we move on, do you believe that Charlie Montoyo was the guy who was making these, co- well, these no, pitching? Well, I, I no, think, I think we all know, especially people uh, like, you know, close to the situation, and I know I've been, you know, I have many people that I know that are watching that team on a daily basis. Now, the, the Toronto are not the only one. They Their decisions are made on a collaborative effort between one the manager, the general manager, and analytics. They are no different than the team I'm looking at right now, the Oakland A's that are leading the Chicago White Sox 6-4 right now. A lot of the decisions, and, and this is the way baseball is going. The ability to have touch and feel like a manager used to have many years ago, or not well, for years, it has disappeared. It, 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 it just doesn't go that way. And we're seeing hockey, football, Every sport going in the line, the lines of, of uh, you know stats and, and and you know past histories and that kind of stuff. And I think in this case, what the Jays did, and I argued against it. I was check my timeline on 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 Twitter. I was like everyone else, going, "This is a, this this is this is this makes no sense." But it actually did. It actually kind of worked out. I okay. would I if I was made. King of all things, I would ban analytics. I don't know how you do it, but I think this stuff is just tearing the guts out of a lot of sports. Now, I understand, but to the, to be fair, I understand the reasons for, and I see some of the benefits of it. And and I'm not I'm not an anti analytics person in the sense that it can make sports better. I just, as far as performance in some cases, I just think you do see some things that push the limits and you go, I would still like to see some human thinking in this game, in these games, rather than just more and more being done by a computer algorithm. I I, I can't, you know, but I think that's, hey, not even sports. I think there's all industries out there in the world where a lot of this stuff is, is, is figured out and decisions are made that way based on, and like I said, past appearances, past uh, successes or failures. Um, And there's people in analytics would, you know, and they, to be honest, I mean, we've, we've come to the point now when we look at strikeouts for, for, for example, in, uh, in baseball where they mean less to managers now than they used to before. Um, we've gotten to a point where your win and loss record as a pitcher means nothing, means nothing, right? You're looking at other things like whip and, you know, strikeouts to walk ratio, you know, uh, you know, how you fare against right-handers or left-handers, those are the things that are breaking down the game. Now, I'm not as smart as a computer, um, oh, and, I do pref- and I do prefer that you know the the manager living and dying by decisions. But I guess in this modern day of sports, where wins and losses can mean money, <laughs> they're looking for the most foolproof ways to make decisions. And I, well, think, I would, I think we've reached a point where we can't turn back or we won't turn back. Well, we're not going to. And so I would then, because we can't, and you know, as I said, if I was made King, I would do this. Well, I'm not King, sadly. Um, <laughs> but what would you but be the, next, the King of Hamilton? Would you be? Well, the king? I, I, I haven't decided. I haven't decided which my kingdom would be yet. I'm still working on that one. I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it handy in case someone comes up and offers me a kingdom somewhere and I have a choice. You have one um, week to answer this question. <laughs> but if, if, since that's not happening, likely, likely I'm, you know, holding out hope, but not likely. Um, the one thing I would do then is say, all right, 
you want to play your analytics game with the sh- big shift where you move guys over and stuff. Yep. I'm now, if I'm a player, I'm now saying, fine, I am considering that one of the unwritten rules. You know how we always have the unwritten rules and you can't do this and you can't do that. If you want to play the shift against me, I am breaking every other unwritten rule in this game. I hit a home run. I am flipping my bat so high it lands in the second deck. I You you shift against me. I You have a no-hitter going in the eighth. I'm bunting every single time on you. You like These are the ways that somehow, I, I don't know, maybe this is the way you do it. I, I've never understood, quite frankly, when people put the shift on, why player after player after player is not just bunting a ball down the third baseline and saying, screw you, you're going to do this? I, I know it's not a home run, but we're just going to wear you out this way. Well, it, and, and you're right. I mean, and that's the thing, because play, the, the percentages say the shift is on, it works. You know, and it's funny because the shift is actually, I mean, this is a little research on this. This is, the shift has actually been something that's been going on in baseball since the early 1900s. And really, it got kind of ignored and brought back by Joe Madden. And now, you know. Yeah, but not the shift like this. Not the shift like this. They, they, there were guys that would shift over a little bit. You'd move your yes, second baseman yes, closer. It, it's, it's definitely much more exaggerated, and that's because of analytics, where they can yes. actually look, and, they'll, and, and you'll see managers saying, a little further left or a little further right because of it, um, because they've looked at hit charts, and they figured this all out. Um, and I guess, I guess, I guess, because it's still in, it's, it's on an increase, there must be numbers. Oh, there are. The it works. It works. It, it, it works. It absolutely works. It absolutely works. And I, I would say, you know what, I, if I was taking over a team, I would say, you know what, I would make an announcement publicly. I consider the shift to be against the unwritten rules of the game. So if you do that to me, I am go, I'm free to do any other unwritten rule and drive you nuts. I'm going to, I am going to do every unwritten rule back at you. And then maybe we can try and make the case that, you know, and they will still do it. They'll still do it, but you're gonna you're gonna play that game. I'm gonna play games back at you because I, I, Bubba, this the, the when when you see guys in the dugout now with a gigantic thick binder with all the numbers and everything, it's like come on, let's. This is a game played by humans. This is not a computer game. Let's let humans play this game because even though some performance may be better now because of diet and exercise and everything else. I'm not sure the game is better now for all of this. Here's something to consider. And this is going to be reality in in the way I look at this too, especially when you look at uh, more experienced veterans that are going to be free agents. We've talked about this, how the Blue Jays, you know, and based on analytics, they don't, they believe, and numbers are proving for certain particular pitchers more than others, that when you, when these pitchers, right-handed or left-handed, face lineups a third time in a game, you know, so you've you've gone through the cycle or the lineup once, twice, that percentages, you know, again, or effectiveness drops. And some are worse than others. Um, Tanner Roark was one that actually, for the Blue Jays, his statistics when facing a lineup a third time around dropped significantly. And they treated him as such. So in essence, his starts end up only being four innings long. And he's an experienced guy, and and he's like, I want to throw 112 pitches or 115 pitches. To the point I'm getting here, 
is this going to affect the way free agents think, right? Like, are they going to look at particular teams and managers and say, look, I don't want to play for that team because they rely so many, so much on analytics and I'm an old school guy and I want to go into the, I want to pitch into the eighth inning. Will that be, will that be a deterrent for the Blue Jays for, uh, you know, a lot of experienced, better veteran pitchers? Well, you might get you might get some experienced relievers who love the idea, but yeah, I mean, are you going to lure a big time starter here if he believes that he's only going to pitch four or five innings through? And is that is that going to be something? It's a really interesting idea. Is that going to be something that factors now into free agency decisions? Where you know, in the past, you guys have wanted an extra stall in the locker room or this or a private jet or whatever. Is it now a promise that you don't get yanked? Unless you, what? I mean, how do you do that? I don't know how you make that that rule. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, let me. We got a couple minutes left. I want to ask you about something else really quickly before we go. The XFL was. Um, I, I don't know if it was. I don't know if we can call it a colossal failure. First time it was a failure. This time, it was. It was okay, and then of course it ran like so many other things into COVID, and we don't really know. I don't think whether it was going to work or not. Well, The Rock bought it the league when it went under again. And he says it's coming back for 2022. Is the third time lucky for the XFL or is this just the league that Bubba, we are forever going to be talking about coming and going and coming and going and failing and starting and whatever is, is, does this have a hope? I actually was, uh, had some interest because obviously with the first time they tried to be so radically different and they, Vince McMahon was very verbal and basically, I mean, he almost took a Donald Trump approach and the way the USFL was many years ago back in the 80s, that they wanted to almost run up against the NFL. And we all know that that's not going to work. This time around, they wanted to work with the NFL. They wanted to, you know, not play when the NFL was playing. And I think that was an idea that was beginning to work. I thought you saw better players. You definitely had way better coaches, top-name coaches. Um, And we did see the NFL looking at some of these players. So whether they were using it as kind of a junior league or a farm league, I mean, kind of unannounced, um, it was there. I think it was working. You also had the backing on television, which the first go-around didn't have, on Fox and ESPN. These games were getting televised. Now, were they going to get NFL numbers? Of course not. But I thought they were doing okay. So I'm very concerned here, first of all, if I'm the Canadian Football League, which we have no idea what they're doing. I have no idea what, where this league is going. If it's back in 2021, are they taking two years off? We've heard nothing from the commissioner. I keep hearing stuff, you know, because we're, I'm lucky enough to work with uh, a heavy CFL insider and Justin Dunk from Three Down Nation. Um, you know, so I hear some funny from things that are going on. But I'm very concerned about this league. So you've got a guy with the rock with a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of ability to get marketers in their league. I think it's going to work, Scott. Because And the problem is you're going to have a lot of American players that are going to settle on their pay system and say, I want to stay in the United States and I don't want to go to Canada. So this is going to cut into the player pool for the CFL. And I'm not quite sure, again, because I have not heard from the commissioner. Have you? I don't know what's going on with the Canadian Football League. No. So, so to me, whatever the XFL is doing, I think it's for real. And there's no way a guy with the reputation of the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, is going to just let this sink and fail. 
I think they are. They might be onto something here. Well, what, when was and there can be an argument on this. So I, you know, I'm, this is not an absolute statement. But when was the CFL last most relevant in this country? I would argue it was when you had John Candy and Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall running the Argos. I mean, that's when even people who were not real CFL fans tuned in to watch because there was celebrity power and they remember they got a lot of their celebrity friends to help out with it and to build i remember the first night they had the the blues brothers concert at the one of their games and Mm -hmm. you know like there was a bunch of stuff if the rock can bring some of that so it's not just bringing back football that's of good quality football but also sexy it up and i i I don't mean the way the xfl sexy it up the first time with strippers as cheerleaders i mean like make it a make it a celebrity thing somehow, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think you may suddenly have a league that's not going to be the NFL, but that is going to potentially be attractive to players who might come to the CFL. And yeah, I, I, I think he's, I, I don't see what the play is for him other than to actually try and bring it back. Why buy it? Unless there's some things you could further sell off and make an investment, but I, I don't see it. I, I think he's going to really try and bring it back, and wow. I'm going to be real interested. And, and let's be honest. I mean, he's got a lot of people probably working for him, a lot of smarter people than him that looked into this before he put his money where the, the you know where his mouth was, and said this this was actually doing okay, right? He, and remember, I think people forget too. The guy was a CFL football player at one time, right? He was. He was an NCAA player with the, with the Miami Hurricanes. I mean, so he understands the game. He understands the love for football in the United States. Um, and again, that second go around, if you talk to people that actually watch some of the games, some of the innovative rules, I, I think, were working. You know, the way they were actually running, because in the NFL, the kick return is all, all in all disappeared. They found a way to make it interesting again without the incredible injuries, which, you know, the National Football looked at and said, look, we've got too many concussions going on here, and they cut it out. So I think that I really do believe they are on the smart here. And there's something, you know, again, the fact that it doesn't have to compete with the NFL is huge. And the fact that they don't want to compete with the NFL is huge. So I think that they're on to something here. Remember, there's like, what, 300 Division A schools that play football in the United States, there's players that want to play. And the, the ones that come here might not want to come here because we did see in the beginning of the season, even many good players on the Hamilton Tiger Cats that asked for their release and ended up on a roster somewhere in, the, in, the, in, in that league. It's an interesting one. Uh, not next, uh, not next summer, by the way, or spring, just to be clear. So people are listening. Twenty twenty two. The Rock says it's coming back. We'll see. They're uh, not uh, rushing. They're going to put together something solid. I'm concerned, Steve. Uh, Steve uh, Scott, I'm I'm very, very, very concerned for the Canadian Football League here. I I, I really am. We shall see. Um, you know, that's it's it's that's that's a lot. That's heavy coming from the prettiest girl at the Grade Nine dance. No, God <laughs> loves the CFL. Right? That loves the CFL. Yeah, and if you're wondering what that is all about, well, go back and listen to the start of this conversation. It's uh, Bubba is the prettiest girl at the grade nine dance and always will be. Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the compliments. (laughs) Have a good night. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.